welcome to Long Hill Chapel Online. Thanks for checking out our podcast where you can listen to our latest sermons filled with teaching, encouragement, and hope from God's Word. So whether you're in the car, on the couch, or just poured some coffee, let's dive into today's message. Hey everybody, Pastor Michael here. We are so glad you've joined us today as we kick off a brand new series called Collide. You know, since I was a little kid, I have absolutely loved airplanes. I had the chance to fly a little bit uh, earlier in my life, and I still, to this day, when I get on a commercial flight to go somewhere, there's a little bit of a thrill when that plane leaves the ground. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, my son and I went to San Diego to see my dad, and I always remember that moment when the plane starts down the runway, it picks up speed, and then there's that moment where the nose lifts off the ground, and then the whole airplane takes flight, and there's that moment where, where you're always asking yourself just a little bit, is this plane going to make it or not? Is it going to get off the ground and go where I want it to go and land me in one piece or not? And today we begin a series that really looks at a spiritual version of that same question. Now, when we think about our faith, when we think about religion or spirituality, Christianity, or really anything else, we think about it very often in these lofty terms, things like theology. We talk about heaven. We talk about the nature of God, and all of these are really important things. But the thing that matters most is whether your faith can take flight with you, whether your faith can get off the ground, whether it can make its way through the storms of life and all of the circumstances that we encounter. And our series Uh, for these next weeks uh, through the New Testament letter written by James is really a series that's all about that. It's a very practical look at how our faith intersects our life, how faith and life collide with each other. Now, James was an interesting character. He was the earthly brother of Jesus, and we discover as we read through the biblical literature that he really didn't believe in his brother's claims that he was the Son of God until after the resurrection of Jesus. Can you imagine like your own brother doesn't believe you for a long period of time? But James then went on to become the first bishop of Jerusalem or the first pastor to the church that was in Jerusalem. And he wrote the letter that bears his name, and it was one of the earliest New Testament books or letters that was passed around and circulated through the churches. It was before the, the writings of the Apostle Paul or even before the Gospels had been written down. And it was written to Jews who who believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be and that he had done the things that he claimed to do, that he died on the cross and then he did what something else, someone no one else did, he rose again on the third day. And James writes the letter because the Jews in Jerusalem were beginning to scatter. The church was beginning to kind of come apart at the seams a little bit because they were running into persecution. They were running into oppression at the hands of the Roman Empire, which was the dominant power of that day, and even with some of their Jewish countrymen who saw their faith and their belief in Jesus as a threat to their own Jewish identity. And so James doesn't write a theological treatise, for instance, like the book of Romans. He doesn't write like a book about the end times or the apocalypse, like the book of Revelation. He writes this very practical book that sits at that intersecting point, that colliding point between faith and real life. Because these Jewish religious people, like all religious people, were struggling not with what they knew, but with what they were doing about what they knew. You know, our greatest struggle, if you're a Christian, if you're a Jesus follower, it's not about what you know, it's what you do about it. It's how it changes and orders your life and your steps, how you put your faith 
into practice. And so, James, as we go through these next weeks during the summer, it's where those two realities of faith and life collide. And so today, we're going to begin at James chapter 1 and verse 1. James writes this, and he starts off with a greeting like many of the letters, like you would if you were writing a letter. And he says this, James, a bondservant, and that's a key word, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nation's greetings. And so he's writing to the Jewish people there. And it seems just like a greeting, but there's that key word, bondservant, that actually sets up the context for everything else. And for us to understand everything that comes after, we have to pay attention to that word. That's a word that most of us, we know what a servant is, but a bondservant was a very specific relationship. In, in James's time, bondservants uh, were servants who had served their masters, usually for seven years, and in, in Jewish law and in kind of in popular cultural law, they were given their freedom after that point. But a bondservant would make a decision to stay a servant of the family that they were serving. And that was usually because relationships had been developed. There were a lot of really wonderful relationships. And we struggle with the concept of, of servants uh, like they had in antiquity. But a bondservant would voluntarily pledge themselves as a servant to the master for life. It was a permanent decision. And so they had freedom of choice in that moment, but they acknowledged their master and, and gave the rest of their life to their master because of their desire to continue in the relationship that had been formed, to be with the master and the master's family and people, to be willfully indebted to the master. And that's a foreign concept for us, but for us to understand and grasp anything that comes next, it's something we need to understand clearly. You know, sometimes our trouble with making sense of the circumstances of our life has everything to do with our vantage point. You know, most of you who are watching or listening to this, uh, you believe in God. And there's lots of people who believe in God in some way. Uh, surveys say that actually the majority of people believe in some concept of a higher power or God or deity. But the question is, is that just something you believe in, or is God your master? Have you chosen to place your day-to-day -day life in God's charge and in God's care, really? You know, this is a very different reality than our reality here, especially in America, where we believe that, that all people, all men, and we kind of extend that to all things are created equal. You know, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was a, a, a philosopher, he, he wrote this, that's a kind of a famous quote. He said, God created man in his own image, and man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. And so we have a very hard time understanding this concept of God as master, as, as authority that's been placed over our lives, because it's just so foreign to all of the other relationships and understandings that we, especially in America, have. You know, so what we end up doing is we view God kind of like our cosmic help desk. Some of you have worked in a company where if you're computer breaks, uh, you call up a person, you go down to a place and you hand it over to them and you say, please fix this. And they fix it and they hand it back to you. You're aware that they're there. You acknowledge them in passing, but you don't really engage or interact with them unless you need something fixed. And you don't see them again until you need something again in the future. And very often, our real relationship, not our acknowledgement that God exists, but our real relationship with God is very much like that. You know, we're all good until something happens in our life, and then we we suddenly pray a lot more than we used to, or we, we lose our keys, or, or there's some big or small circumstance that intersects us with God 
But then we go on with our lives and we keep doing things the way that we're doing them. And so if we're going to make any sense of the things that we're going to read next, it's going to be a challenge for us unless we understand this. Listen to what James says in verse 2. This is like the second statement of his letter. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. Remember what we said just a little bit ago. The people, his audience, the Jewish audience, they had all signed on. They'd witnessed or they believed in Jesus and what Jesus had done, that he wasn't just a moral teacher, uh, that he was Savior and Lord, that he died on the cross, but then he rose again on the third day and that he was actually the Son of God. But now they're beginning to run into trouble. And so here's where these two ideas connect, that being a bondservant, placing yourself willfully under the care and the authority of a master, in this case, God, and trials connect with each other. If we're going to make any sense out of the trials and the struggle that we have in our life, and we all have it, and find any kind of peace, it's going to be because we make ourselves bondservants to God. We trust ourselves to the care of the master. We make a decisive choice with our lives, and we surrender ourselves to Jesus. Because otherwise, we are left to our own understanding, our own perspective, our own intellect, our own resourcefulness, our own sense of power and control to try to make sense of our lives when difficulty comes into them. And difficulty always comes into them. And so James says, consider it joy when you face these things because you know it actually, it produces something in you. It makes you stronger. It produces perseverance in you. And when that begins to happen, let it finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This seems kind of like a ridiculous statement because if you're anything like me, when you encounter hardship, the joy is like the last thing on your mind. It certainly is for me. So most of us just don't get all excited when we run into this. And it seems kind of masochistic in a sense. But here's the thing. The key is your perspective. You know, I played uh, soccer growing up for many, many years, and we practiced more than we played games. My older son is playing baseball right now. And so many times in the evening, we'll go out and we'll play catch, or I'll take him down to the cages, and I'll throw the ball to him. And he goes to baseball camp, and he goes to practices. And the reason he does that is so that he has automated. So the things that he has rehearsed and he done over and over again develop a character in him. And that character is the ability to be a good baseball player. For those of you who are runners, it's true with you. Some of you, you play musical instruments and you know that practice is not fun. Certain instruments, like if you play the guitar, for instance, when you start, it actually hurts your fingers before it ever sounds good. But there's something that happens that when we persevere, when we keep going, when we keep at it, even when we don't see the outcome we wish we saw or the results that we want immediately, if we keep going in spite of that, it begins to produce something in us that we can't get any other way. Maturity, steadfastness, and strength. And the way that we get through that is by trusting the coach, trusting the master, the teacher, that they know what they're doing, trusting the process, that it's working itself out, even if we don't see the results in the way and in the time that we would like to. 
And so my question for you is this. Do you trust that God knows what he's doing when it comes to your life? Do you trust that God knows what he's doing when it comes to your life? Do you actually not just trust him when it's easy, but trust him, acknowledge him as master in every circumstance and place yourself under that? You know, as a child of the 80s, and we've talked about this many times, and one of my favorite movies in the 80s was The Karate Kid. And if you've ever watched it, there's this whole section of the movie where Daniel, one of the main characters, has decided that he's going to learn karate from Mr. Miyagi. And so he goes over to his house, and the first thing Mr. Miyagi does is he makes him do all these crazy household chores. He has to sand the, sand the floor. He has to paint the fence. He has to wax on and wax off the car, and it doesn't make any sense, and Daniel actually gets really frustrated until the master connects the dots of how this relates to the skills, the things that he's teaching him, that even though they seem simple and repetitive, that once they become automatic, they allow us to face bigger things and then move on. There's always been a part of me that just wishes the whole movie was about Mr. Miyagi, uh, like teaching Daniel, like, and just getting all his household chores done, and that was the entire movie. But for you and I, when we encounter trials, if we've acknowledged that God is master, that we're not God, that it's not up to our resourcefulness, it's not up to our understanding or our sense of power and control, but we place ourselves under the authority of God as bondservants, servants who have made a decision, a free will decision to acknowledge God as the God of all of our lives, When we encounter trials, we can trust that the character of Jesus, being like him, is being developed in us. Now, perseverance, keeping going before we see the payoff and the results, before we understand sometimes how it's worth it, it's absolutely not natural because our culture is all about transactions and shortcuts. That's why we have diet pills. That's why we have credit cards. That's why we can pay later. But perseverance is the opposite of that. It's developed through a lot of struggles and sometimes through things not making any sense. You know, there were many early expeditions to Mount Everest, which is one of the highest mountains in the world. And in the 1920s, there was a man named George Mallory who who tried and attempted to scale Mount Everest many times. And in the process, he lost a couple of men. And he had this statement, which I think is such a key statement because it relates to all of us. He said this, speaking to the mountain, he said, Mount Everest, you defeated us once, you defeated us twice, you defeated us three times, but Mount Everest, we shall someday defeat you because you can't get any bigger, but we can. And so even as your circumstances may seem like they're so tall and so overwhelming and so hard to make sense of and understand... Your circumstances will always be what they are, but you can grow past and beyond and even bigger than your circumstances. So if we're going to persevere, we need to have the right perspective. Perspective is absolutely key. James goes on in verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, 
and it will be given to you. And some of us, we like to take this verse and just kind of make it this like standalone freelance verse where, you know, we just need wisdom for random things. God will give us wisdom, but we need to remember the context of what James is talking about. He's talking about trials and difficulty. And there's times where you and I have encountered difficulty. We've faced trials. There's been things that have tested us. And the promise we have from God here is that we can ask God for wisdom in the middle of those things, and he will give it to you. So when you run into difficulty, the first thing to try to do is to get through it or to make sense of it or to overpower it or get back into control. I suggest to you the first thing to do is to ask God for wisdom because this is the kind of prayer that God delights in answering. Crying out to God shouldn't be our last resort. It should be our first move because it's not a sign of weakness but of strength. I want you to notice something here too. James doesn't say ask for answers, but rather he says ask for the right perspective to see the path, even when it's difficult and when it's dark. Ask for wisdom. There was a pilot who later became an astronaut, and his name was Jim Lovell. And that name sounds familiar to some of you who may have lived through the events of his life, but many of us have seen a movie starring Tom Hanks called Apollo 13. And it was an account, a dramatized account of the mission, the space mission of Apollo 13 in April 1970, where close to the moon, 205,000 miles away from home, there was a failure and explosion aboard the spacecraft. And instead of landing on the moon, a Jim Lovell and his fellow astronauts had to find their way home with very little chance, so far away from home, farther than anybody had ever been stranded like that before. And of course, that story ends well. They make it back. But there was another story that many people don't know about with Jim Lovell that he was a Navy car carrier pilot in the 1950s. And there was a time where he was flying over the water at night, which if you're a Navy carrier pilot, is the hardest time to fly, night operations. And you're flying uh, by your instruments, by your compass and by your navigational instruments that allow you to know sort of where you are. And these days we have GPS, but at that time they didn't. And suddenly, as he's flying over the water, uh, all of his instruments failed. And so he has no way to know how to navigate back to the aircraft carrier in the middle of the ocean that he was supposed to land on. And then after that, to make matters worse, the power failed, and then the radios failed. All the power failed. And so it seems like things just got worse and worse and worse. And finally, all the lights were turned out. But there was something that happened because all the lights were turned out. You see, a ship, a large ship, especially like an aircraft carrier, as it goes through the ocean, it stirs up plankton, it stirs up small sea creatures that are in the water that are phosphorescent, that emit light. And so as the aircraft carrier passed through the waters, it stirred these plankton up and they began to glow. And because all of the lights went out, Jim Lovell was able to see a path that led him right back to the aircraft carrier and he was able to land safely. And that experience, as difficult as that was, that prepared him for an even more difficult version of that same journey 15 or 20 years later on Apollo 13. If he hadn't lost all power and all the lights went out, if it hadn't been completely dark, he would not have been able to see the wake trail back to the carrier and he might have been lost. And so when we ask God for wisdom, he might give us something that we don't expect. He might even do something that seems like it's turning all the lights out. But in that moment, 
He may give us something that even though so much seems dark, we're able to see the path in front of us because darkness has revealed it. Often, for us to experience what God has for us, God has to bring us to the end of ourselves. He has to bring us to the end of our understanding. And sometimes he does that by turning out all the lights so that we'll see his path. James continues, he says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So when you ask God for wisdom, he might give you something that doesn't seem anything like what you expected. But stay the course, because remember where we began. You're a bondservant. You have placed yourself in the trust of the master. You belong to God. Trust him. Don't backtrack. Don't waver. This is a decision. It's not a feeling. Sometimes our circumstances will tell us to go in the opposite direction when we need to stay the course. Have you ever tried to follow someone in a car in front of you who's indecisive? They don't know if they're supposed to turn right or left or which lane or how fast. Or you've ordered at a restaurant with someone who keeps changing their order and is indecisive. It's absolutely frustrating, right? So stay the course. And so wisdom, James is saying, might be like turning out the lights. It might be like removing the things from our lives that we actually are depending on. And then only then, once we're out of control, we'll see God's path through. You know, as you navigate at night, like my son and I, we love to look up at the stars in our backyard. You only see them when the darkness reveals them. And you can actually, like, like people who have been on ships for centuries, you can navigate by them. But it's the darkness that shows us where they are. And when we're in the midst of this, our feelings, my feelings, your feelings, they're going to scream at us. You know, in our faith, in our journeys of faith, we love the high points. We love the mountaintops. We love when things make sense and when the path is clear. But character is formed in the valleys and in the dark places. And so James continues, and it seems like he takes a little bit of a turn in verse 9. He says this, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. But then he brings it back in verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love them, love him. You know, the first part, it seems like a left turn, but it's not. You know, this isn't about like, you know, how much money is in your bank account or how well off you are. What James is really saying is he's saying, what's your source? What's at your center? What's your supply? What's the thing that you reach for that gives you a sense of mastery and control? Is it temporary or is it lasting? And once you get below the surface, what are you truly made of? And there's nothing like trials. There's nothing like suffering. There's nothing like difficulty. There's nothing like the path of perseverance that reveals what's truly at the core of us. Most of us can keep it together when things are good. But when we've encountered difficulty, it shows who we truly are and where we're truly placing our trust. So what you're made of underneath 
is the thing that will determine the direction you go if, not if, but when trials come. You know, I have two little boys, and I've said that many times, and we watch a lot of those kids' TV shows, but one of them is Sid the Science Kid. And I was watching Sid the Science Kid with my, my kids one time, and they did a piece on heat. And heat changes things. And in many cases, the change is permanent, and it's irreversible. Just think about fire when it consumes wood, or, or baking when you make bread, or cookies, or cake. The effect that heat has depends on what the object that's encountering the heat is made of. Right at the beginning of this talk, I put two objects in the water at, at the beginning in a pot of boiling water, and they're both about the same size and about the same weight. One is an egg, and one is a potato. You know, so they look about the same size-wise, weight-wise, but what's inside of them is completely different. And this becomes obvious when you turn up the heat. You know that an egg, when it's in its raw, cold form, it's fragile, it's soft, it's easily breakable. But when you apply the heat, it becomes hardened. And enough heat, it becomes so hard that it's inedible. But a potato, it starts out hard. Nobody eats raw potatoes. But when it experiences the heat, it becomes soft, becomes flexible, it becomes usable. So the heat is the same. The water is the same, but it has the opposite effect depending on what's inside. And so the heat of life for you and for me has an effect on us, but that effect is absolutely determined by what's at our core and what's inside of us. You have a choice to make when you find yourself in the fire, in the heat, and the hot water of life. You can persevere or you can run. And so my question for you is when the heat gets turned up, do you become hardened or do you become softened to what God wants to do in you? As we close today, Maybe Jesus is asking you to trust him, not just as Savior, not even as you know, cosmic religious figure, but as master, to place yourself like James did, as a bondservant under the authority of God. And maybe right now you're in a season of your life where the circumstances around you feel like they're just overwhelming you. Maybe what God is actually trying to do in the midst of those is bring you to the end of yourself so that you'll ask for wisdom to see his path in the dark, just like that trail behind the aircraft carrier when all the lights went out, so that you'll trust him. Or maybe today you're feeling the heat, just like that egg and the potato. What is that heat producing in you? What are those trials creating in you? Is it softening you? Is it making you more useful and more responsive to what God is doing? Or is it making you cynical? Is it hardening you? And maybe what God needs to do is change what's at the center of you today. And trials, you know, they're always painful. They're always difficult. Nobody it gets excited about these things. But they can have purpose. And when we encounter them in the right way, when we encounter them, with the spirit and the power and the perspective of God, when we place ourselves, humble ourselves, under the authority of God as our master, they can have a good purpose. They can make us more like Jesus, and they can make us stronger for everything that life will throw at us as we continue the journey. So when it comes to the trials of life, egg or potato, which one are you? Let's pray together.
Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these ancient words, some of the very first written in the New Testament so many years ago, to a group of people who are experiencing different things that we experience, but something that's common to all of us, that we're facing difficulty. I pray for each of us today as we face the difficulties of our lives, of our relationships, of our physical situation, uh, of our financial situation, of our relationships with our, our parents, our kids, our husbands, our wives, our friends, the world around us. As we look into the future uh, with uncertainty, we look into the past with whatever it holds. That those things we encounter, those difficult things, they would produce the right fruit in us. And they do it because we recognize you as our master. That we are not God, but that you're always at work. That we can place ourselves in your hand and we can trust you and we can keep going. For however that looks for each one of us, I pray your spirit would be enough. That you'd give us peace today and you give us bright hope for tomorrow. We thank you for our time together and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. To connect with us further, you can visit our website at lhcnj.net or on social media at LHCNJ. And we'll be back next week with another sermon. Until then, have a great week and God bless.